All right, we've got a couple of announcements uh, for everybody to pay attention to. Uh, On September 15th and 16th, which is two weeks from tomorrow and Thursday, the Council for Dispensational Hermeneutics Conference is going to be held at the Sugar Land Bible Church. Now, I've gone to that several times. I think I presented a paper at one of them. And um, this is uh, started. It's it's primarily in the past been a uh, an organization for professionals, for academics, professors, pastors, teachers. But in the last couple of years with COVID, it's gone the way of pre-trib and Chafer Conference and opened up to everybody. So they're going to be live streaming it. Uh, for uh, for all of the conference, and uh, there are a number of very good speakers, and you know a number of them. This is something that's very similar to pre-trib, but it focuses more on broader issues related to uh, dispensationalism. And you can go online to dispensationalcouncil.org, dispensationalcouncil.org, to register or to see the schedule and the schedule of speakers. So it starts at 8 o'clock or 8.30 on uh, Wednesday, I don't remember which, and then it goes through, and then there's an evening service. I think Andy is teaching uh, Wednesday night, and then on Thursday night at 7 o'clock to 8.30, they're having some sort of panel discussion. Uh, Andy is on the panel. Mike Stallard is on the panel. Uh, Wayne House is on the panel, and I think there's a fourth person on the panel whose name I I, I know who he is, but I I haven't met him. But so most of er- everybody familiar with this ministry are familiar with those, at least three of the four who will be on that panel dealing with the significance of dispensational theology for today, and that will be good. So we will not be having Bible class on that Thursday night. You can register, go to their website and register, and then they will send you a link for live streaming. And uh, we'll probably send the link out anyway. So that conference is scheduled. So that Thursday night, the 16th of September, there will not be Bible class here, but everyone can just live stream, or if you register, you can come to the uh, conference itself over there at Sugarland Bible Church. Either way, if you have any questions about that, ask me or ask Cheryl. And we'll get, or, or, I don't know Barb if you know anything about it, but um, uh, we can get get you the answers. But everything should be there on the, on their website. And if all else fails, just remember dispensational hermeneutics, and you can search that and probably come up with it pretty quick. I'll put up a link tonight. Okay. Okay, Barb will put up a link on the website tonight. The other thing is that last week, uh, Ruben Monzone, Alex Monzone's father, uh, went to be with the Lord. He had COVID and was hospitalized for a couple of weeks. And his uh, funeral memorial service will be held next Tuesday. That's the 7th of September at 11 o'clock in the morning at Second Baptist. He was a retired DEA agent and a retired federal marshal, and those law enforcement agencies come out with all of the pomp and circumstance. So that will be uh, 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 an impressive service. So that would be next week. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God, And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever.
Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so everyone can make sure that they are in right relationship with the Lord, walking in fellowship, walking by the Holy Spirit, and then God the Holy Spirit is in a position to uh, fill us with his word. So we will uh, take a few moments, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity we have tonight to just be refreshed by your word, to get away from all of the input we receive these days in the world, and to focus upon your word that is stable, eternal, that is the source of our joy and our uh, inner happiness, and that which gives us the knowledge we need that God the Holy Spirit can use and transform into wisdom Uh, making it uh, skillfully applied in our lives. And Father, we pray that you would just uh, oversee what is going on in this nation. We know that it is due to your permission and your will that we are going through the chaos that we're facing and that we have the uh, inept politicians that we have. But Father, we pray that the many believers in this nation and the many in this nation that support Israel those who support missions, uh, proclaim your word. Father, we pray that you might watch over them, provide for them, that whether we go through the uh, trials and tribulations of living in a pagan nation or whether you, in your grace, grant us a reprieve. And, Father, we know that, that it may be your will for us to just decline as a nation. But, Father, we pray that that might not affect our mental attitude that we may just relax and know that all is in your hands and that the battle is yours. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, tonight we're going to continue what we have been studying for the last uh, several weeks, and that is the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And so tonight we're going to continue what I began last week, and that is looking at Uh, the Holy Spirit, in the leadership of Israel tonight, specifically among the prophets of Israel and some other leaders in Israel. And this is so important. And along with what I've been covering on Sunday morning with the role of the Holy Spirit today, uh, I get questions from people in the congregation that I think ought to be a little more clear on this after all these years. And I get questions from pastors that certainly should be a lot more clear on some of this than they are. And so just because you've heard it 30 or 40 times doesn't mean perhaps that you have really grasped it. Uh, This is so essential to our spiritual life, and there's so much confusion. And I have read through and looked at a number of good theologies of the Holy Spirit, and I always find things that, that just aren't quite, quite there. So often these men who are great theologians are not necessarily great exegetes, and they really haven't tried to put it together. But then we're always, the, our understanding of Scripture go, advances from generation to generation. And when you go back and you read some of the wonderful writings of people like A.C. Gabeline and uh, C.I. Schofield and Chafer a hundred years ago, they, they were, let's say, using a shooting metaphor. They were on the paper, but they weren't close to the bullseye. And as, and that's generally true in the study of church history. You just see this, what we call the, the, uh, the development of doctrine. And it doesn't mean doctrine develops. It means our understanding of doctrine develops and sharpens and focuses as we go from generation to generation. And so the uh, generations of the pastors from 50 years ago and the pastors from 100 years ago and 150 years ago, each one of them moved things forward. And then the next generation stood on their shoulders, saw some of their 
uh, things that weren't quite clear, improved that, and every generation passed on and stood on the shoulders of the generation that preceded them. And if it were not for the fact that um, we've got almost 2,000 years of thought going into understanding the Scripture, we would be as... as um, as unclear and as confused as those in the first two or three hundred years of the church. So we are a blessed generation that we have had all of this heritage to build on and all of the understanding and the study of the word that has gone before us. And if the Lord tarries, it's going to take another and takes another hundred or two hundred years before his return so much more will be understood. It's hard to understand that. We've got so much available to us. There is so much Bible teaching available to the everyday believer today that it is overwhelming. And yet the problem is that most people aren't availing themselves of it and they they really don't care. It's just a sign of, of judgment. So in our study of judges, we've come to the first judge, Othniel, who defeats this first invading force of Kushan Rishathaim from Mesopotamia. And he does it because the text says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Now, this is the most common uh, metaphor that you find in the Scripture for uh, describing the empowerment by God the Holy Spirit. And it uses the preposition al, which means on or upon. It is not talking in this case of something where the Holy Spirit is indwelling. Now, there are instances, we'll look at, we looked at some last week, we'll look at some others tonight, where there were some believers in the Old Testament who were indwelt. But most of the time, it seems like the Holy Spirit is using an external stance. We looked at the other judges. We looked at uh, Gideon in 634. The language there, it's translated came upon, but that's really bad. It's the Hebrew phrase uh, that means to be clothed with. Now, if I'm going to put on a suit of clothes and I'm clothed with that suit, then I'm in that suit. So that seems to be a metaphor for some sort of indwelling, but it's not for the purpose of the spiritual life. Uh, Judges 11, 20, 29 ret- returns to the basic phrase, uh, w- and literally it's the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And then 13, 25, 14, 6, Judges 14, 19, and 15, 14 all refer to the Spirit of the Lord empowering Samson. So we're studying this topic What does the Bible teach about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament? And even though some of the phrases sound similar to phrases used for the New Testament believers' relation to the Holy Spirit, they're not. And it's very, very different. And I pointed out last time, this is another important aspect of this study, is it's very clear, we'll conclude with this, I hope, tonight, uh, as we look at the Trinitarian aspects the plurality aspects in several verses. But I pointed out that a first century Jew would have clearly understood what the gospel writers were talking about when they mentioned the Holy Spirit. We looked at all of those passages from the very beginning of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. They started off talking about the Holy Spirit with no explanation whatsoever, recognizing that if that Jews had an understanding of who the Spirit of the Lord was, And it wasn't until sometime later, uh, after Christ came and after Jerusalem was destroyed, that you have uh, uh, the Jewish, uh, new Jewish power of the rabbis, the Council of Yomnia, that solidify a view of God as a strict monotheism. And, And through the Old Testament, they understood there was a plurality. So we're tracing these ministries, and I'm going to hit these rather rapidly. It's just a review of what I've said, and I've repeated this each time. First of all, while the Holy Spirit at at times had ministries to individuals that are similar to the New Testament church age ministries, they aren't the same. 
always through Scripture, a key factor in dispensationalism. From one dispensation to another, there are many things that are the same, but it's the differences that are important. It's the differences that set apart the different dispensations. And so these ministries of the Holy Spirit were not permanent. They were not for every believer, and that makes a big difference. The Holy Spirit's ministry was selective, and it was primarily for the leadership of the theocracy in the ancient world, for the prophets, priests, kings, writers of Scripture, judges, and a few others. Second, several different words are used to describe this ministry of the Holy Spirit. He came upon some, he filled some, he was in some, he was clothed with some, and he empowered others. And so we're looking at these different passages. Third, at no point do we have it said anywhere in the Old Testament that it had anything to do with their spiritual life. No indication that it has anything to do with uh, indwelling the body of the believer to make a temple for God. That's what we have in the church. The, we are indwelt by God the Father and by God the Son. And that means we are now the temple uh, that is made by the Holy Spirit. And that, that is different. There is not a physical temple as there was in Israel. Fourth, at no point is there any suggestion, I modified the way I phrased this, this is better, uh, is there any suggestion that it was related to spiritual life, spiritual growth, or the spiritual walk? Dr. Walbert in his book on the Holy Spirit states, it will be noted that the coming of the Spirit to indwell individuals has no apparent relation to spiritual qualities. Only a few were indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and these were known by their distinctive gift and sought out as leaders and prophets, and they were marked men. Fifth, since the ministry was selective and temporary, uh, God could remove the Holy Spirit. He removed the Holy Spirit from Saul in uh, 1 Samuel sixteen fourteen, and after David's sin with Bathsheba, uh, and conspiring to have her husband Uriah killed, he prayed in Psalm 51, 11, for God not to take his spirit from, from him. So we're looking at what the Bible teaches about, uh, about God, the Holy Spirit. Now, I need to skip ahead a little bit to about here. Okay, this is how far we went last week. We ended up with looking at uh, Saul. Looked at a wide range of passages, and we're going to look at some of those same passages tonight, but looking at them for a different purpose. So what we, what we have seen is that uh, in the Old Testament, there were the leaders of Israel who were, had a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, tonight was our first uh, categories, the, the craftsmen of the tabernacle. Later we'll see this pr- applied to the temple as well, but it's most clear here. And so we want to pay attention to how it is stated. And the reason we're looking at how it was stated is because it, it's a lengthy description and it's abridged greatly when you get to uh, Kings and the description of the those in the who worked on the temple, but it means the same thing. So we'll, I'm just pointing that out. So in Exodus thirty-one three, God has given instructions to Moses about building the tabernacle, and in verse three he says that he is to he's appointing Bezalel as the chief craftsman, overseer, construction engineer for everything that's going into the tabernacle. And God said, I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding in knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. Now, this is a great statement because the words that are translated wisdom, understanding, knowledge, are words that are used to describe in various passages, and in a few of the Proverbs, they're all used together to describe God's skill in creating all things. And so this is talking about that kind of skill, that level of skill is what the Spirit of God is giving and providing for Bezalel. 
and his oversight of the construction of all of the details uh, in in the tabernacle. But the key word that we're looking at is that it's described, I have filled him, and I put with in italics because there's no with, there's no specific preposition in the Hebrew. It just says, I have filled him the Spirit of God. And so that's what it means, but I can't exegete the preposition because it doesn't exist, so you don't know whether it's in or on or what. It's just not stated. But the purpose of that uh, filling is the wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. So he has knowledge. That's part of it. And wisdom, that's the skillful application of knowledge in understanding. That has to do with discernment and being able to make the right decisions. Knowledge, this has to do with the content, the information. Remember, I try to state this, that you have to remember that information is it knowledge? We live in the information age, and people think they're so smart because they have access to so much information. But information isn't knowledge, and knowledge isn't wisdom. Information and knowledge relates to knowing that, that um, a tomato and avocados are fruit. Wisdom is not putting them in a fruit salad. But real wisdom is mixing them together and making some really good guacamole. So that's what we have here. It's it's the purpose is to give a super, super ability to apply the knowledge in the, the working with the gold and the silver and the bronze and the wood and uh, weaving the fabrics and the tapestries and all of the artistry and everything that was involved in making the tabernacle. It was absolutely beautiful, and we could not duplicate it if we tried because they had an artistic ability that was truly God-given beyond anything that any artist that ever produced in human history. So that's that purpose. God, is, it has nothing to do with the spiritual life. In verse 30 31.6, God does the same thing for Aholiab, who is uh, sort of his second in command. And, he, and God says, and indeed I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. Now, do you think all he did was give them wisdom? Did he give them understanding and knowledge? Sure. Did he fill them with the Spirit? Yeah, he's abridged it now. That's the point I want to make here. He gives the full statement in verse 3. I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship. But the actual workers, which are the ones that are described in verse 6, I put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans. What does he mean by gifted artisans? They're gifted with the, with the same uh, filling of the, of the Spirit to produce and to have the wisdom and the understanding and the knowledge in order to make everything because they're the ones who are actually the hands-on ones working on that. So that's what my note is here at the bottom. It doesn't mention the Holy Spirit in that verse, but it's understood because of the context that it's the Holy Spirit that's giving them this this skill. And it's assumed because of the previous statement in verse 3 related to Bezalel. Now, when we get to Hiram in 1 Kings 7.14 in a little bit, it abridges it the same way. So we have to understand that Hiram is the equivalent to Bezalel for the construction of the temple. And don't you think that in building Solomon's temple that God would have given the Holy Spirit to give the wisdoms, uh, understanding, and knowledge for working with all of that to a much greater Degree the the Solomon's temple was considered one of the wonders of the of the ancient world. So you get, have skill for those who are creating that which will be the centerpiece of the nation's worship. It is like nothing else on the face of the earth. Then the next 
person mentioned is David, not in the sense of being king or being the writer of the Psalms, but in the sense of his design of the temple. And in 1 Chronicles 28, 12, we read, and the plans for all that he had by the Holy Spirit with him of the courts of the house of the Lord, of all the chambers all around, of the treasuries of the house of God, and of the treasuries for the dedicated images, dedicated things, rather. And, and so when you look at this, I underline that phrase with him because that's not in the New King James Version. It's in the Hebrew, but it's not there in the translation. And then, because sometimes they get it right, a lot of times they get it wrong, I, put, I looked at the NET. Now remember, the NET was done, most, all the New Testament was done by men who were on the faculty at Dallas Seminary in the New Testament department at the time, and their theology determines their translation many times, and there's a lot of things that I, I discourage people who don't know Greek from using that because if you get you read their translation notes and several other things, you can get your theology really messed up. And this is an example where they they really make a a, 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 a big error here. They don't have with him at all either. They don't even mention the spirit in their translation, and ruach is clearly in the Hebrew text. So they translate it. Um, that David, that is, he gave him, Solomon, the blueprints of all he, that is, David, envisioned for the courts of the Lord's temple, all the surrounding rooms, storehouses, etc. So envisioned is how they are interpreting the phrase of the, that he had by the Spirit with him. And this is the note that they put in the translation note that I have here at the bottom of that slide. The, they... they 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 say this is a more literal translation, the pattern of all which was in the Spirit with him, lowercase s. So they're interpreting that as what's in his, his mental attitude, what, what, what his thinking was, that sort of thing, and they have uh, removed the divine aspect from it, which I think is a serious mistake. And so that's interpretive because, as I've pointed out many times, you don't have capital letters, uppercase letters for God or spirit or any words like that in either Greek or Hebrew. And we, do, we have traditionally done that to, for clarity so that God is and spirit or uppercase, you know it's God. And then when you have pronouns, they're uppercase. But the convention now in, in writing and printing and publishing is not to uppercase pronouns related to God. And so newer Bibles that are coming out, newer translation, translations, don't have uppercase he and him. Uh, they have lowercase. So it really makes it confusing trying to figure out who these pronouns describe. So that's what we have here, just a clear statement that that the Holy Spirit was with David in planning the, the, all, everything, all of the plans related to building the temple. Now, we have another category that shows up, and these are the prophets. Wait a minute, I missed one. It dropped out. I had it there earlier. Hiram. Hiram is mentioned in... Um, 1 Kings 7, 13, and 14. Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, so he's not, uh, he's not, from, he's not ethnically from Tyre. He is Jewish. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre and a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom. That's talking about uh, Hiram. He's filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze work. Now, remember the full statement of that was really back with with um, Bezalel that I filled him with the Spirit of God. Now, the Spirit of God's just left out, but he's filled with wisdom and understanding and skill. That's what the Holy Spirit filled Bezalel with. Okay? 
So they, he, it's just shorthand. You just skipped over that. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit wasn't involved because where else would have he gotten all that wisdom, understanding, and knowledge? So if God's going to fill him with wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, it's still saying that this is uh, a, a directed by, through the Spirit of God. It doesn't have to be necessarily stated for it to be true when it's stated clearly in longer, fuller statements. Okay. So we come to um, prophets. There we are, the prophets. Now, we know that prophets in the Old Testament were led by the Holy Spirit, moved, the text says, by the Holy Spirit, and that God breathed out the Scriptures through the writers of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17, for all Scripture is breathed out by God. The dynamics of that, remember, breath is related to the word for spirit in both Hebrew and Greek. So we read in the Old Testament, where did I put it right there, that Prophecy never, I mean, in the New Testament, 2 Peter one twenty one. for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This is a Greek word, pharaoh, in the New Testament that is a present passive participle. Now, that's important grammatically. In a passive participle, the one, the, the, the subject receives the action. So the subject is the prophets, and they're receiving the action of the Holy Spirit who is moving them. And this word Pharaoh is, has the idea of being moved or borne along or carried along, and it's used of a ship being moved along by the wind in Acts 27, 15, and 17. So this is the, and what's the word for wind again? There are other words, but pneuma, air, wind, breath, spirit. So all of, all of those are meanings of the word pneuma. So Old Testament prophets had a relationship that is especially the writing prophets, and it would be true of the speaking prophets also. Not all prophets were writing prophets. So that tells us that all of the prophets had a relationship with the Holy Spirit in terms of the communication of the Word of God. So I want to look at several examples, five examples, of men who apparently just had a one-shot relationship with the Holy Spirit. We're never told much more about any of these five. There's just one episode in which uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon them or clothes himself with them. And the first one is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 15. In Second Chronicles chapter 15, and I'm just put a little bit of each one of these stories up here, but it's really important to, if you can, open your Bible and look at these and maybe underline a verse or two. Second Chronicles 15.1 begins, Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah the son of Oded. We have no idea who Azariah was. We don't have any idea uh, what happened to him. We do know that Azariah is uh, going to speak to King Asa in the next verse. In verse 2, he went out to meet, meet Asa. And Asa was the third king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Saul, David, and Solomon are kings of the united kingdom. After Solomon died, the kingdom splits because of a tax revolt by the ten tribes in the north. And the first king in the north is Jeroboam, and the first king in the south is Rehoboam. Rehoboam was very, very foolish. His son Abijah uh, became the second king of Judah, and his son Asa became the third son. Now, we have to understand a little bit about the context here. In in chapter 14, just prior to this, Asa is faced with a, 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 a military disaster. 
And he has an army, if you look at verse 8, he has an army of 300,000 from Judah who carried shields and spears. So that's your infantry. And from Benjamin, 280,000 who carried shields and drew bows. So these are your archers, light artillery. And then, uh, and that's it. These are mighty men of valor. But they're facing a huge army from Ethiopia that has come up from the south and has overrun the Philistines and is about to overrun Judah. And they have an army of a million men and 300 chariots. So they have a light armor division there or corps that's going against uh, the Israelites. And so they come up, and Asa goes out and sees him and looks at this Ethiopian army that's drawn up in battle array in the valley of Zephatha at Merishah, which is down in in Judah and toward the south. And Asa does exactly what every one of us ought to do. When you see that you are facing any kind of a problem, adversity, difficulty, the first thing should be to go to the Lord in prayer. That should be number one, not to pitch a hissy, not to say, oh, no, what am I going to do? Not to uh, get all worried and anxious and upset and tie yourself up in knots. That's not what he did. Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, and this is just a great prayer, Lord, it's nothing for you to help. Whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rest on you, and in your name we go against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. He's appealing to God's character and God's omnipotence because they are, and it's grounded upon the fact that Israel, Judah, are the people of God. And the result is that God answered the prayer positively. The Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. And Asa and the people who were with him pursued them to Gerar, that's down in the area of the Philistines. So the Ethiopians were overthrown, and they could not recover, for they were broken before the Lord and his army and they, that is, Asa, Asa carried away a lot of spoil that and plunder that the Ethiopians had gathered. And then they defeated, that is, Asa defeated all of the cities around. So it's in that context. Asa has just come off of a tremendous victory. God has given them the victory. He prayed to God. God answered it. And now he's going to get further instructions not to get too proud. So the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa, and he said to him. So it's interesting, in these, each of these examples, you have the Spirit of God coming upon the individual, and then the individual speaks. So it's similar to the use of Pimplemi, if you remember, in, in the Gospels and Acts, that when... Uh, it says that uh, Elizabeth was full of the Spirit, and Zechariah was full of the Spirit, and Peter was filled with the Spirit, and Stephen was filled with the Spirit. That after these things, it says, then they say something in almost every instant. Well, that's what's going on in these examples. The Spirit of God comes upon him, and he says something. Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. It's interesting emphasizing that one of the roles of the priest was to teach them the law, to teach them the Torah. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And that's true today. God is going to respond if we turn to him. Verse 5, he says, And in those times there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. 
the great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the land. When you're not seeking God and seeking God to sustain you in times of difficulty, then the result is going to be chaos and turmoil in your personal life. And so he goes on to say, So nation was destroyed by nation, city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity, divine discipline. But you, here's the command, but you, Asa, be strong and do not let your hands be weak for your work shall be rewarded. And when Asa heard these words in the prophecy of Oded the prophet, he took courage and removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had taken uh, in the mountains of Ephraim and he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. So that's the first example. The second example, most of you were talking about him just this last week. That's Jehaziel. Jehaziel. And we learn about Jehaziel a couple of chapters later. We talked about him not long ago, about a month ago, in this episode in Second Chronicles 20, uh, verse 14. This is a situation that involves... Uh, Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat is the son uh, of Asa. And if we look down here uh, at these verses, it it has to do with the fact that these three groups are going to come together uh, against uh, Jehoshaphat, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and there's another group mentioned later. And they're going to come against um, there's Ammon and Moab and the Edomites, Mount Seir. And so they uh, come together, and they're going to attack Judah. And as Jehoshaphat has to face this, he does the same thing that his, that his fa- father did. And so in verse 2, he's told by his uh, scouts, a great multitude is coming against you from uh, beyond the sea from Syria, there in Hazazon Tamar, that's in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord. That's what we should do. Set ourselves to seek the Lord. Whenever there's any kind of a problem, small problem or big problem, a lot of people think, oh, I don't need to bother God. God wants to be bothered. He's omnipotent and omniscient. You're not going to surprise him with anything. So Jehoshaphat proclaims a fast. Now, as I've pointed out in the past, there's nothing mystical, magical, or spiritual about fasting. Anybody can go hungry. The issue in the time of the Bible was it took a lot of time to prepare food. You have to butcher animals. You have to build fires. It's not simple. You don't have a microwave where you can pop the dinner in there and punch three minutes and then it's done and you're over with. Meals disappeared in five minutes. It took a lot of time. And so what you're saying by fasting at that time is I'm setting aside all of these other important things in life because they're going to take me away and distract me from praying and depending upon the Lord. And so he proclaims a national fast. He gathers the people together uh, from all the cities of Judah, and then he goes out, good leadership. He goes out and stands in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the courtyard of the temple. And he says, this is his prayer. O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? In other words, aren't you the one who rules the universe? Are you not God in heaven, and do you not rule over the kingdoms of the nations? So he's laying a foundation for his petition that God is the one who is able uh, to, to answer the prayer because he is the one who rules over the nations and rules over, the, over history. And then he focuses on, on the attributes of God. He says, in your hand is there not power and might? That's God's omnipotence, so that no one is able to withstand you. Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel? So what's he doing now? He's appealing to the Abrahamic covenant and to the land covenant. And he's using that as a foundation for laying the petition and the rationale for why God should answer his prayer. 
and he says that that God has given them this land because and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever. And they dwell in it and have built you a sanctuary in it for your name, saying, if a disaster comes upon us, sword, judgment, pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this temple and in your presence for your name, that is your character, your presence is in this temple and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And then he says, so now here are the people of Moab, Mount Seir, that's the Edomites, uh, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. And he's almost blaming God for this. Look, if we had wiped them out when we were coming through, we wouldn't have this problem. Now we got a problem. They may be related to us, the Edomites and the Moabites, but they want to destroy us. Here they are rewarding us by coming uh, to throw us out of your possession, which you've given us to inherit. And then he says, Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power against this great multitude that is coming against us, nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. That's how we should be praying. I can't do anything about this situation. I can't do anything about what's going on in terms of economics around the world. I have nothing to say about uh, the ebb and flow of political power. I can cast my vote, but then we have people who have been dead for decades who are still casting votes. All we can do is trust in God and call upon him. Our eyes are upon you. So, all of Judah stands with him, and then in verse 14, which is on the screen we read, Then the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh, that's his co- emphasizing his covenant relationship with Israel, came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, so he gives all his, his genealogy, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, Listen, all of you, Judah, and all you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. And that's a great statement to remember. The battle is always the Lord's. And so we read the rest of the story, and there is a, they set up basically an ambush, and then they start singing psalms, and then God is the one who comes down and confuses the enemy, and they start fighting each other and kill each other, and then they, uh, God gives them the victory. The result in verse 29, and the fear of God was on all the kingdom of those countries, when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel, then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. So what we're looking at is the Spirit of the Lord, and we just have that basic language, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jehaziel. That's all we know. It's not a continued presence. It's just a one-shot deal. Then we go to... um, The next one, who is not Jehaziel, it is uh, Zechariah. I thought I changed that. Zechariah. And so we read this episode that the Spirit of God came upon, and this time it's Lavash, the same word that's used with Gideon. God, uh, I mean, the Holy Spirit clothes himself with Zechariah. So if you're clothing yourself with something, you're inside them. So this hints at an indwelling, but it's not for the spiritual life. The Spirit of God came upon, clothed himself with Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, so he also speaks. Now, what's the context for this? This is Zechariah. Zechariah... So in Second Chronicles 24, uh, this is talking about uh, uh, the son of Ahaziah. This is I got to get to Second Chronicles 24. This is the episode where uh, Joash is the king. 
Joash was the young boy who was hidden by the high priest uh, Jehoiada because uh, his stepmother, Athaliah, the daughter of Jezebel, was seeking to kill and massacred all of the heirs, all of the children of his father, and except Jehoiada uh, was hidden and protected until he was old enough uh, to be king, and then he was he was brought out. He was the son of Ahaziah and became the ninth king of Judah. And Second Chronicles 24.2 says that Joash, that's another term for, for him, uh, that Joash was, did what was right in the sight of the Lord all the days of Jehoiada the priest. Problem was, after Jehoiada died, then Joash just faltered completely. All the wheels came off, and he went away from the Lord, and he led the people back into idolatry and the worship of the Asherim and the idols. So God sent a prophet to indict him. Now, this is a significant episode. So in verse 20, the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, and he goes to... And he's the son of Jehoiada, so he's known uh, Joash all along. And he says, This says the Lord God, why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, God has forsaken you. Now, let's say you're Joash. What are you going to do? Well, I better change. That's not what happens. The people who heard Zechariah go off in an, into a huddle and make up a plan, and they come back and they kill him. They stone him. We don't like God's message, so we're going to kill the messenger. And this is the last prophet in the Old Testament that is killed by the people. And it is significant because in, Jesus refers to this in the New Testament in an important passage. In Matthew 23, 34 to 35, Jesus is in that confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees, and Jesus says, uh, this is in the midst of those woes uh, on, against the Pharisees. And he, he says, therefore, indeed, I send you prophets. God is speaking. I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. That's this Zechariah in Second Chronicles 24. Now, why is that so important? See, in your English Bible, the first book in the Old Testament is Genesis. And the last book in the Old Testament is Malachi. But that's not how the Hebrew Bible is laid out. The Hebrew Bible starts with Genesis, and you have the Torah. And then you have the Nevi'im, the prophets, the former prophets starting with Joshua, and the latter prophets that end with the, uh, the Twelve. So Malachi is in the middle. And then the last section of the writings, the Ketuvim. And the last book in the section of the writings is Second Chronicles. So the last tail end of the Old Testament is going to be the end of Second Chronicles. And so when Jesus says, from the blood of righteous Abel, that's the first murder in the Bible. And the last murder of a prophet, because he calls Abel a prophet, the last murder of a prophet is Zechariah. And so this tells us that at the time of Jesus, the canon was set in the Old Testament from Genesis to Second Chronicles, just as it is today. It's a great confirmation of the, the preservation of the Old Testament and that the Jews by the first century had settled the canon. And it was all set. They never did include any of the Apocrypha that the Roman Catholics decided to, to use uh, later on. Anyway, so that's just an aside. The point is that now we have that same kind of description as with, with Gideon, that the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada. Then there were prophets that were 
uh, some others, two others that were empowered temporarily that aren't part of the prophet mainstream, so I put them as four and five. Balaam, who we looked at before, who was a prophet from Mesopotamia, a diviner who was selling his gift for money and who was really uh, in apostasy, but he was a believer. And we're told in Numbers 24-2 that he's been brought to uh, by, by uh, Balak, the king of Moab, to come and curse the Israelites when they're coming through or going around uh, Moab. And so Balaam raised his eyes, and he saw Israel encamped according to their tribes. And oops, he's been paid off to curse Israel. And then what happens? The Spirit of God comes on him, literally was upon him. Same language we see in most of the other references. And so now all he can do is bless Israel and not curse them, and he gets in a lot of trouble from Balak because of that. Then the last one is Amasai, someone who is uh, overlooked a lot. He's mentioned only a couple of times in the Old Testament. He comes down to David when David is fleeing from Saul, and he's in the wilderness of Judah. And Amasai comes down to join forces with David. He is a leader of a group from Benjamin. Now, remember, the Benjamites weren't real fond of those in Judah because of all of this struggle between Saul and David. But Amasai is a believer, and he is going to align himself, and he brings reinforcements to David. And so we read, then the Spirit came upon, again, we have that phrase, Lavash. He closed himself with Amasai. Uh, chief of the captains, and he said, We are yours, O David, we're on your side, O son of Jesse. Peace, peace to you, and peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. So David received them and made them captains of the troops. So these are just the one-shot events where the Holy Spirit has uses somebody for just one occasion. Then we have those who are empowered on a more permanent basis. Probably most of the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, it seems like over a long period of time of their lives that the Spirit of God is working with them. But also we have in the former prophets, you have Elijah and Elisha. And so in 2 Kings 2.9, we read that at the time that Elijah is about to be taken to heaven, that Elijah says to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha says, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, the problem here is that a lot of translations put it a lowercase spirit, and I read a man's dissertation, a lot of which I didn't agree, with which I didn't agree, dealing with the filling of the spirit, and it's all convoluted, but he takes this as not the Holy Spirit. But the problem with that is that in 2 Kings 2.9, a little later, it, so it was when they had crossed over. Oh, that's a repetition of that. Oh, I didn't get the right verse in there. And what happens in, let me see, I've got it in right here. Uh, in Second Kings 2.15. Now, when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, that is, saw Elisha coming, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And here it's capitalized. That doesn't make any sense. It's either the Holy Spirit in both places or it's not the Holy Spirit in either place. So it's the Holy Spirit in both places. The Spirit of Elijah rests on him. They came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And then in verse 16 they said to him, Look now, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. So contextually, he's clearly identified, the Spirit is identified as the Spirit of the Lord. Then we have uh, one more passage here in Micah 3.8, where uh, Micah says, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now, some of these other passages I'm just going to go through briefly because we have touched on these. Uh, Zechariah says, uh, Yes, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his Spirit 
through the former prophets. So that again tells us that the former prophets had a long-term relationship with God the Holy Spirit as they are writing and leading the nation. Nehemiah 9.30 also confirms that, where Nehemiah says, Yet for many years you, he's praying to God in Nehemiah 9, Yet for many years you had patience with them and testified against them by your spirit in your prophets. So that, again, suggests a long-term relationship for a large number of the prophets. So in this last category, we've touched on these before, the Holy Spirit empowered the leaders of the theocratic government. In Numbers eleven seventeen, we touched on this once before. God says, I will come down and talk with you there. I will take of the spirit that is on you. That's got to be the Holy Spirit. It's the same kind of language as Elijah. To take Elijah as not the Holy Spirit just doesn't fit. I will take of the spirit that is upon you and will put that same upon them. That's what Elijah was, Elisha was asking for is the spirit of, of Elijah in a double portion. So the spirit that is upon you will put, put the same on them. These are the 70, uh, the 70 elders. So it tells us that Moses had the spirit probably from the time of the burning bush and that this is then given also to the el- 70 elders. And I wanted to look at the role of the Spirit in prophecy just briefly. Isaiah 11:2, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, talking about the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. So the Holy Spirit is going to rest upon the servant. So this gives us a sense of plurality also. Isaiah 30, verse 1 says, Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me, and who devise plans but not of my spirit, that they may be may add sin to sin. Now what do you see there? Number one, it's an indictment of Israel for their rebellion. Number two, the speaker is the Lord excuse me, the Lord Yahweh, and he says they don't take counsel of my spirit. So you have plurality here. You have the Father probably and the Holy Spirit. Now, in Isaiah 42, 1, you also have uh, prophecy that, that the Holy Spirit will be upon the Messiah, but it also emphasizes plurality in the Godhead. Who is speaking here? Behold, my servant whom I uphold. It's got to be God the Father, because my servant is the Messiah. So you have the Father and the, and the Son, and he says, my elect one, that's my choice one, that's a term for the Messiah, God the Son, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Isaiah 42.1. Now who says the Trinity is not in the Old Testament? Oh, well, the word Trinity isn't there. Well, it's not in the New Testament either. But you have passage after passage after passage where it talks about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 61.1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Who's speaking? Who's the me? That's got to be the Messiah, the servant. The Spirit of the Lord God's the Holy Spirit. The Lord God is the Father. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Well, that's the God the Son is preaching good tidings to the poor. So again, you have a plurality here in Isaiah 61.1, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 48, 12, 13, and 16. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. Who's speaking? Have you heard that verse before? I am the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Who says that? Where does he say it? Revelation 1. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. He says, Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth. 
It's the Lord Jesus Christ. My right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. And then in verse 16, come near to me, hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. And now the Lord God, that's the Father, and his Spirit have sent me. I didn't think the Trinity was in the Old Testament. Isaiah 63, 8, down through about verse 14. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their Savior. It's got to be talking about the Son. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. That's the Son. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them, and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit. So he turned himself against them as an enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit within them, who led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm? dividing the water before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the deep as a horse in the wilderness that they might not stumble, as a beast goes down into the valley, and the Spirit of the Lord causes him to rest. So here we conclude by our study of the Holy Spirit that it is clear that the Trinity is mentioned in the Old Testament and that the Holy Spirit had a significant role but only with leaders, kings, prophets, um, the elders in the, uh, who, who supported uh, uh, Moses, uh, Joshua is indwelt, a couple of others are indwelt, but it's not for their spiritual life, it's not for their spiritual walk, it's not for their spiritual maturity. It is to give them skills in various areas in order to lead the nation. So now that we've looked at this, we can go back and understand that what's going on with Othniel and with uh, probably Deborah, because she's a prophetess, and with Gideon and with Jephthah and with Samson, is that God the Holy Spirit is giving them the military skill in order to defeat and destroy the enemies of Israel. So we'll come back, and next time we're going to look at Ehud, and how Lefty killed Fatty in the outhouse. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that the, your Spirit, who in, uh, did all of this in the Old Testament, indwells us, and he desires to fill us with your Word and to mature us and to br- produce in us the fruit of the, of the Spirit, which is the character of Christ. And Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and realize how vital it is to walk by the Spirit and to see all of this produced in our life. But it is not done apart from the Word of God, but through the Spirit of God and the Word of God working together in the child of God. And we thank you for this. In Christ's name, amen.